we need to have these valueless holes. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And together, we're going to explore fractions. But first, Chris, what's you reading for? Hey, what are you reading for? Just today, I was exploring a paper called, I'm going to read this because it's slightly longer than I remember. So testing in brackets, quizzing, boosts classroom learning, a systematic and meta-analytic review by Yang et al. from 2021. And it does what it says on the tin. It's a review of um, lots and lots of, re of research relating to the testing effect, quizzing, but particularly relating to classrooms. Um, it looks at um, 222 independent studies with over 48,000 students. And there are some kind of key takeaways about quizzing that I was sort of semi-aware of and some that I was completely ignorant of and some that I already new so you know the, the key thing from this is yes um testing benefits learning you know te the testing seems to be a beneficial thing to do what's interesting is the nuances so for example um it doesn't seem to be any impact of the stakes of testing or the means through which you do the testing uh, so you know whether you're using multiple choice questions or using something that requires um, a little more a little more difficulty to retrieve doesn't seem to um, make a difference to outcomes. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. It is yeah, a really fascinating paper to dig into if you're interested in this stuff. I think the most interesting parts were um, about the, the theories that it says are supported or are not supported or supported to a lesser extent by this. So there are certain theories behind the efficacy of testing that they define as additional exposure, which is just you're doing more of it, so it's bound to make a difference. And there, there seems to be some backing for that. Uh, transfer appropriate processing is the second theory. And this is the idea that the kind of questions that you answer will be similar to the kind of questions that uh, you might um, be exposed to when testing and then assessment as well. And so the consistency between those might be useful. And there seems to be some a suggestion that that's part of the reason behind the positive aspects of the testing effect. There seems to be less um, evidence related to like retrieval effort. So the idea that you're putting like a real, it's quite a challenging thing to do, kind of if you think about in desirable difficulties ter terms, it, there doesn't seem to be as much backing for that as the reason behind the testing effect, which I found interesting because I would have assumed the opposite before I came to this. Um, and the fourth theory, which it says there is some um, backing for, is just the idea of the impact of it on, uh, on on motivation. So the way that it makes you think, oh, I got this wrong and I now want to learn it to find out why I got it wrong. Or I, I retrieved this and I got it right and there's a little boost to motivation that way. So 
that those were the theories and why it's particularly interesting. The very last thing I'd like to mention is that it's I learned a ton of stuff through being lucky enough to read about this and talk a little bit about it with uh, with Nick Rose, uh, one of the pleasures of working where I do. And he, he talked about the ways that we can, or the ways that researchers can test for uh, publication bias, look at look to see how robust the findings are. And yeah, that was, it was really interesting to learn about that stuff too. And I think you can infer some of this stuff from this paper because it does it quite well. So yeah, wonderful, really fascinating paper, well worth kind of half hour, 45 minutes of your time to pick apart. Um, yeah, Yang et al. Testing, quizzing, boosts, classroom learning, uh, syst a systematic and meta-analytic review. Check it out. What about you, Kieran? What are you reading for? <laughs> you weren't lying when you said you could talk the whole episode about that, that paper. <laughs> but it, yeah, it sounds really interesting. And I think I'm definitely going to check it out sooner rather than later. I have been reading a book called Tried and Tested. And it's by, and I'll butcher the names as usual, Wendy Adeniji and Juliet Park. And essentially, it's about modern foreign languages at primary school. And, you know, do I agree with everything in the book? No. But am I less experienced at teaching modern foreign languages than the authors? Yes, definitely. So I think if you are thinking about how you're going to improve modern foreign language across your school, then it can't hurt to start with this book because there's a lot of food for thought. And while I've never seen a class of year six who were proficient in another language other than English, you know, unless it was their, their home language. I really wish we were in a position as a country or certainly as an English speaking world where it was more normal than it is because one of the downsides to English being the language of business, the lingua franca, so to speak, <laughs> which I always find really ironic, um, is the idea that you don't necessarily need to learn another language to get by in the world if you know English. You know, whereas that's not true. And I think your life is much richer for understanding other cultures and other languages. And I wish our children had that opportunity. So anything that can take us in the right direction is worth, worth checking out. And yeah, so I thought I, th I find it really thought provoking. I agree with lots, um, but also some things I'm going to revisit. Sounds really interesting. Uh, I think it's a neglected area of the primary curriculum in terms of teachers' knowledge. So great to know that there's a, a, a book on the subject that we can turn to. So this week, Chris, we're going to turn our attention to fractions. In one of those episodes where we really get under the skin of a very small part of mathematics, you know, some of my favorite episodes. It probably won't be enough to cover all of fractions in one go, but I think we can really start to prod what fractions are. And my first question, what makes them tricky? I think a lot of our teaching, if we think about the introduction of fractions, starts off with a pictorial representation. Um, and certainly that's where the national curriculum begins. And the nature of it is that there is this implicit idea when we're talking about one quarter or three quarters, and there's nothing after that. It's just three quarters as a thing. 
there is this built-in idea that we don't necessarily communicate to children for obvious reasons at first that this is three quarters of one thing which we take for granted but again when children later down the line start to deal with you know three quarters of 20 or three quarters of 10 or whatever it might be they then have to kind of convert I mean they've spent a lot of their time understanding fractions as dealing on some level with parts of a whole thing and then to transfer to oh okay this applies to collections as well how does this work I think that's um, one of the key difficulties there is um, like a inherent multiplicative relationship obviously within fractions when we're talking about three quarters where and often you know you'll, you'll teach them in certain ways and you for a student to find that you can think of three quarters as one divided into four equal pieces and then count three of them, but they can also see three quarters or can work out three quarters as three whole ones divided equally by four, and that those two things automatically lead to the same place. I think that's a really challenging thing for the children to wrap their head around, that there is effectively this underlying multiplicative relationship that is relative to one that is a fraction. So, yeah, I mean, it, those are the key things I'd say. I, I'd also just say that children get used to numbers being a way of representing a set of objects. And as soon as you're then saying, OK, this Thing, which is kind of a set of objects, I guess, or parts of an individual object, is now being represented by two numbers and, or should I say, two digits or perhaps more digits in reference to each other. And they're introduced to the vinculum as well, that line in the fraction. It just becomes an exceptionally complicated thing to deal with. It's interesting how you've interpreted that question because I've thought about other factors that make them difficult. We thought about the inherent difficulty of fractions. And I think if I, for a second, consider why they, they themselves might be difficult, I think it is that idea that, you know, you're building up your understanding, your schema in relation to number, and it's, it's predominantly, if not exclusively, whole numbers. And so it's almost a question of when do we introduce the idea you know is it sufficient that we introduce it maybe in year one or two depending on where you are or should we wait later i don't know but like when i thought about why are you know, what makes fractions tricky i thought well typically we don't spend enough time really embedding the sort of fundamental concepts or the fundamental ideas associated with fractions and so then every other piece we try to add is less secure you know the hook isn't as you know robust as it might be as we are as we hope you know so maybe not enough time to play with fractions you know when we talk about Cuisinart rods how often do we allow children so much time that they've got this really implicit understanding of the relationship between them you know I reckon you could ask most teachers and they'd be able to talk about the relationship between the white red and green but from there you know, I, I don't think, you know, I think more time is needed and, um, you know, sort of linked to that, our own understanding rarely goes much further than the year we're expected to teach. And I don't think that's a good base position to be in because the more 
rounded our understanding of the concept, the more clear the pathway from that first introduction to, you know, let's say that it really gets more complex than GCSE. And then you're, the complexity is because of the mathematical idea, but because of the utilization of the idea. I don't know. Secondary teachers are probably screaming, going, no, no, it's much more difficult for their level. You know, but I, I'm happy to stand corrected on that. <laughs> I think something you mentioned there kind of jumped out as, uh, at me as well. When I've been working with pupils on the idea, the basic concept of a fraction, and you're using something like Cuisinaire rods, it's, again, there's a, there's a fundamental difficulty in there in that often we'll show children fractions by saying like, here's a thing and I'll draw on it or I'll break it into pieces and here is thus one quarter of this thing. And yet equally with Cuisinaire rods, if you choose the one that is kind of eight times a single unit and one that's two times the size of a single unit and you can compare them, you can say, well, this one is a quarter of the length of that one. So there is the immediately from the, from the very beginning of discussing fractions, this, this sense of comparison between two different things, as well as it is an amount of this thing. So, yeah, I, I think that's something that makes it particularly challenging, or even just going back to the visual representation. Say you draw a circle and you divide it into three equal pieces and then you colour one in and you say, well, this, this bit here is a third. The rest of that thing is still there, you know, and for children who are still often coming to terms with the idea of counting objects to say, well, what do you mean a third? That th that whole thing is still there. It's just that coloured piece is a third. Well, wh where's the rest of it gone? Why are you showing me the rest of this thing? Because you need to show the rest of the whole thing for them to be able to see what this third or this quarter or this half is. But the fact that it's still there means that like trying to pin down exactly what the third is and what the whole is is particularly challenging conceptual thing for children to wrap their heads around. That I think ties into one of the key points. I mean, you were very kind to sit through my talk at Research Ed Barcher, where I explored, you know, maybe 65 plus papers into the use of manipulatives. And one of my big takeaways was that the more salient a representation, the more difficult transfer is. And I think that's a trap that Cuisinart can very easily fall into, like you described. When it very clearly represents one thing, how quickly can we, or how easily can we transfer that idea that this represents something different as well? Brilliant talk, by the way. <laughs> I mean, if anyone gets the chance to see you talking about uh, manipulatives, it's, yeah, worth the price of admission um, alone, in my experience. Not that I had to pay. <laughs> As it turns out, I was there. It was a freebie, but I would have paid. I promise, Kieran. I mean, that, that, that's very kind of you to say. I've actually submitted it for the Research Aid National Conference in 2022. So fingers crossed I'll be able to deliver it again in September. Thinking about what makes fractions tricky. In what way is language an impediment or a support in the teaching of fractions? I think there are things we can do to make the language that we use as supportive as it can be. But in terms of where it's an impediment, there's kind of some obvious stuff 
that jumps out on me. So the fact that we talk about halves, you know, we mentioned halves and quarters here. That is not ideal. You know, thirds instead of threeths. I mean, threeths would be convenient. But yeah, so once we get to sevenths, eighths, ninths, etc., we're fine. But with the most common fractions that children are going to use, we have that issue of having to kind of explain the words we're using. There's not this nice self-evident pattern for the first few of them, which I think clearly makes um, things more difficult. I think also when we're talking about what three quarters is and what the different things it can represent and the way that it can represent this multiplicative relationship related to one, the fact that we can talk about it as three parts out of four, but also as three whole ones broken into four equal quantities doesn't make life uh, particularly easy that um, it has that kind of double meaning and the language related to that. I think one of the hardest bits though is um, the word of. I always come across this difficulty with in um, children working with this because of course, when we're talking about multiplication and we say three lots of something perhaps, or say like three lots of four, there's embedded in this idea of of and lots of that we're talking about starting with one and then, or a certain amount and then counting groups of them. But then when we go into like three quarters of 10, we don't say three quarter lots of 10 because it doesn't quite fit. There's something about this word of that suggests we're taking something from within something. We're taking a smaller piece of a whole, which is fine, you might argue, until you then get into say nine quarters or nine quarters of 10 say because we're, we're talking about not taking like chunks of something smaller so the language gets really quite confusing around of and so we end up with these circumstances where we say to kids things like if in doubt of means multiply just as long as you bear that in mind you'll be okay but again it's it's not ideal that we have this double meaning or this double use of this particular um preposition I mean, that was the very first thing I wrote down, you know, some of the ones I always think about, well, like when there are 32 parts, what, what do we call that? Isn't it, it's not a 32th or 32nd, you know, 21, you know, lots of our numbers don't, don't conform, you know, and don't help us with fractions. And where a language allows you to be more effective, just like when we're talking about place value, you know, you're impeded by the fact that it takes a lot. You know, we, we want to be succinct. We want to be really clear in our mathematical vocabulary choices, because if we can say something in two words that might normally take 10, then we're allowing pupils the chance to consider what it is they're explaining because they've got access to vocabulary that says more in less time, if that makes sense. I don't want to run circles. There are certain ways where we look at our language and we say, no, we can't change it for really good reason. So, for example, with our spelling system, um, there are because of the etymology of our the words in our language, the history of them. And because of our spelling system that comes about because of that, it's quite complicated. But trying to then say, oh, we're just going to you know, make a simpler version of it doesn't fly because of all sorts of reasons, including things like different accents that will pronounce things in different ways so finding a, like a uniform way to spell stuff is you know basically a non-starter and yet when it comes to whole words and definitions of words within things like mathematics 
I'm, you know, I'm a bit more radical. I'd be perfectly happy to say, for example, no, we stop using the word quarter and we start calling it a fourth. That's sensible, for example. I mean, I, the challenge there would be um, half. Presumably part of the reason that's come about is because tooth is already a thing. And so, yeah, you'd have ways around that. But I'd rather deal with that than all the, you know, halves, thirds, yeah, et cetera. But there are ways, however, in which language is on our side rather than an impediment or can be on our side if we use it carefully. One thing I often have seen um, when I've watched other people teaching mathematics is, um, and particularly related to fractions, is the way that they use numerator and denominator. And the fact that often there's this reluctance to use the words. And so they end up using both for basically all of primary education. I say, okay, so the top number, which is the numerator, and the bottom number, which is the denominator, which is perhaps fine when you're introducing it. But at some point, you have to commit. You have to say, no, I'm just going to call this the numerator now, and I'm going to call this the denominator. Otherwise, I'm not getting the value out of the fact that I have this relatively simple label. So I think some things that we can do to support the teaching of fractions is to commit to um, these useful uh, labels. And perhaps, dare I say, this is my bias coming to show here, perhaps look at a little bit of the etymology of the words, look at the fact that we have this kind of num part of numerator suggesting counting, and we have this nom part suggesting that it's like the name of the fraction in some way, which I think is often helpful um, to, to pupils. So I think there are bits and pieces that we can do to, um, when it comes to language, to support uh, pupils' understanding. Yeah, I mean, I was going to suggest that uh, in this instance, etymology is your friend, because you, I think the original word or the origin is denominare, to name. And, you know, once you once you sort of explore relatives in that area, like denomination, you know, you may have already learned about money. Well, you know, I'm not sure how often we talk about denominations of money, but it's an easy connection to make when you say, well, here is a set that you will understand. And here's something, you know, and here's a way we use it in this context. And, you know, I want to say numerare, or num um, but my pronunciation is way off. It's been thousands of years since I studied Latin and <laughs> I really should get back into it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that happens all, through, all throughout mathematics. You know, the 15th century, you know, ministers slash mathematicians, as they were, chose a lot of the symbology and the, the vocabulary and the terminology for very particular reasons, you know, the multiplication cross, you know, is a cross, you know, it's sometimes, a lot of times it's a, a, a dot, but it's a cross because it's an Andrew's cross and an Andrew is reportedly the person who brought Jesus the loaves and fishes, which were multiplied. So some sort of Anglican minister slash mathematician in the 15th, 16th century has decided that that would have a lot of resonance. And it's a story that can bring a hook to you know, to that that your exposition at the start of the lesson or the your introduction multiplication, and um, certainly in terms of the product. Um, so yeah, and I think if you can find something similar with the uh, with numerator and denominator, then they become really useful terms. You know, because you can't spend four years going the top number and the bottom number. It just uh, it's just cumbersome. I mean, in some ways, I think if a school kind of makes the commitment to one or the other and say, you know what, we're just going to call it top number and bottom number that that is a better deal than trying to 
constantly dealing both or not having a level of consistency. But from my experience, children are actually much more adept at picking up regularly used vocabulary than we might suspect them to be. So just throwing it out there and say, no, this is the numerator. This is um, the top number in a fraction. We're going to use the word numerator from now on. And this is the denominator. Um, but linked to that, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I'm currently tutoring a friend's son. And part of what we're looking at at the moment is fractions. And this idea that the denominator is to some extent the name of the piece that we're dealing with has been a particularly valuable way of talking about fractions. But alongside that, having language like if you're talking about three quarters, saying, well, we can also think of this as it's three parts out of four, it's or or seven eighths, it's is seven parts out of eight. And using that kind of language is some, something I think we sometimes forget to do. I think we just forget how tricky it is to learn fractions, actually. One thing that I haven't heard for a long time is the idea of vulgar fractions. You know, we hear about units and non-units improper. But whenever I was learning about fractions for the first time, the term vulgar fraction was pretty common. It might still be common in secondary schools. But, you know, because that has such a really strong resonance as a word in other contexts you know if something's vulgar it's not very nice you got you almost get this negative reaction to it and um, you know certainly if you're of high sensibility you know i don't know it, it, as i'm speaking it seems less of a of a strong word but you know vul vulgarity is not something one wishes to aspire to and um, you know so it's, it's good that you know we can see things like that aren't existing anymore and if schools are willing to sort of front load the vocabulary, you know, say your year, I don't know, year three, and you start throwing the terminology in, then you might put yourself in a good position. So that by the time you really need to understand them in year five, you know, you've got a handle on them. And some people will record the fraction in a different way that suits how we say it, you know, so, a fairly typical way to do it would be to write three fifths as three line five. Well, actually, the total number of parts is five. Of them, three are you know important in this context. And then you, you know, you're almost sort of encouraging people to think in the right way. But you know, I don't think that's common. And when I see it, I'm all, oh, yeah, that's great. I must do that. And then I forget about it. And you know, now I'm thinking, right, okay, this is the day that I go back to doing that. You've just reminded me of one of the most annoying parts of teaching fractions and anyone who works in um, year five or six will recognize this. We spend half our lives trying to get pupils to write one number per box and then we get to fractions and you're like, well, how do we, how do we write mixed numbers with one number per box? Do you go with the numerator and denominator getting its own box and suddenly the whole part of that mixed number is taking up is, is massive it takes up two lines or are you going with the squeezing numbers <laughs> into boxes there's no good way i almost wish that they were like no no we have special paper for fractions or we just use blank paper for fractions because every year that's something that ends up with like pretty ugly presentation or can do as a result yeah not the most like important part of teaching fractions <laughs> but for someone who's as pernickety as i am yeah, that was always a difficult thing to take. 
<laughs> let me throw a question over to you, Kieran. Where should we begin with the teaching of fractions? And does the national curriculum, where it begins, does it help us? Does, do you think it begins in the right place? What's the progression like in terms of your ideal of teaching mathematics? Yeah, so I think fractions in the national curriculum is almost your archetypal example of ministerial interference. Certainly the stories that I've heard recounted over dinner and things have been uh, very much a case of, well, it wasn't there originally, but then we were told that it had to be there. So you know, that's why you get this very dense clump of fractions somewhere, like I say, somewhere around year five, year six, where, you know, Charlotte Hawthorne has provided me with a question for an upcoming maths conf. In fact, it might be the maths conf that goes out on the same day as this uh, episode. And she's asking about unnecessary inclusions in the national curriculum. And her example was, you know, the inclusion of fractions, which she says most secondary teachers would probably prefer we didn't do. So in terms of is the national curriculum helpful because the experts don't appear to have been listened to, I think it's certainly less helpful than we might hope. You know, th those bits of fractions are some of the most enjoyable to teach, you know, as an adult, but I'm not convinced they're appropriate um, for the pupils that we are, that we're teaching. You know, I think you've alluded to it a few times. Any consideration of fractions needs to be rooted firmly in this idea of the whole, because that's where things go wrong with ratio, because we, we don't make the connection with ratio as you know being the other side of the coin, essentially, to, to proportional reasoning. And if we start with this idea of the whole, and it, it's almost like a, a valueless whole, you know, I think value comes in too soon. We need to have these valueless holes that we can explore, cut up, put back together again, and then utilize as a connection, we can make the whole way through, then that's how we start. And it's also how we finish in primary school, say, because we're, we're restricted to the fact that this is the national curriculum. But I think if you see ratio as a description of the whole, but just in a slightly different way, that's the bit that's normally missing. And that's the bit that a more robust exploration of the whole at the start might provide us with. And I would certainly have less attribution of value um, in key stage one. And then maybe, you know, I'd be satisfied if what is now explored in key stage one, we maybe spread over key stage two with more time spent on really getting underneath the two, potentially three-dimensional properties of fractions. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned ratio here because immediately I'm thinking about the classes of children I've taught in year five, six, who are confident or who have been, have, come, have arrived to me in year five or year six, confident with uh, fractions and how easily they've taken to ratio when you've, you've introduced it and like, oh, so I can think of two colon three as two fifths and three fifths of this thing. You're like, yeah, yeah, it's just that. <laughs> and then suddenly ratio is just 
the simplest thing in the world to them. And um, yeah, I, I, it, it just pushes upon us the, the need to make sure that fractions are taught well and highlights, as we say, that the fact that the national curriculum probably isn't doing us any favours here. I think one of the things that bothers me most about the national curriculum, and maybe someone else will say, no, this is a perfectly good idea, etc. I worked in year two and I've done a bit of teaching in year one. Um, I think that introducing children to fractions initially and making it like a mandatory part of the curriculum and saying you will introduce them to a half and a quarter. And, and that's really the, all that you need to worry about. I don't think that's a particularly sensible way to do things. If that's it, you have to go beyond that. I think as soon as you are talking about parts of a whole, if you just do half and a quarter, you're two examples in effect, and then say, oh, well, then they're not ready for more examples than that. If they're not ready for more examples than half and a quarter, then they're not ready for any form of fraction. You need to immediately be talking about thirds and fifths, et cetera, and tenths, in order to get this idea of what, this, what these symbols are actually representing, how they work. I'd probably even go as far as to say that I wouldn't want to wait a whole year between introducing um, unit fractions and fractions that, that are non-unit because I don't want children to have a whole year of an impression that there's always this, there's always a number one on the top of a fraction, that we're always talking about something that's broken into a certain number of equal pieces and we're talking about one of them. It just doesn't quite fit for me. There are certain ways in which, yeah, we want to break, we have to break up subjects, we want to have, we want to have um, this a sense of spiraling of the curriculum totally makes sense but how you divide it up has to be quite sensible and that kind of year one part there doesn't feel particularly um, sensible at all to me no I mean there are more important things we can be doing in year one you know with you know with numbers 10 alone you could fill the whole of those what, what are they 30 weeks? In an academic year, you could fill those 30 weeks with just exploring numbers to 10. You know, obviously we don't because we want to look at um, shape, space and measures and all the other things that are important. But to think that, yeah, you introduce this one glib idea and you don't come back until year two. And it's not the most important thing you're doing in year two. So you, you maybe colour in some shapes. And then by the time you get to year three and you're starting to learn about division, well, you haven't really explored, you know, one version of division or one representation of division in to the extent that it'll help you and i think you know mathematics feeds itself you know really strong understanding here will make this bit more robust one a really weak understanding will bring that whole house of cards down and so yeah we really need to think about the connections that we make and what that looks like over seven years because like you say if, if we just dropped it on we are almost getting to the point where all we do is say, let's not teach anything in year one and two. <laughs> um, but yeah, do more in a more intense fashion because pupils are ready for it. You know, and if you spent a whole year where you just went through unit, non-unit, you know, multiple, multiple examples, you know, you, you probably get more bang for your buck than what we have now. Yeah, I mean, I don't think fractions are akin to, say, uh, bar charts and pictograms and 
aspects of the curriculum that you really could, in theory at least, just leave until like year five and six and go, we've not done this before, but now that you have the actual numerical understanding that's required to, to grasp the basics, this is going to be dead easy to you. Um, it isn't like that. It's not, at, or at least it isn't th that extreme, but there are definite aspects that you could leave. I mean, I appreciate that you might want to be talking about fractions in real contexts from, you know, even reception where you're talking about, oh, can you fill that bucket half full of water or this sort of thing, where you talk about real experiences. But the idea of like assessing pupils' understanding of fractions in year two, that doesn't, yeah, that just doesn't feel quite sensible uh, to me. I think most, most people will do that naturally in the context that they set up. You know, because you're never going to have, you know, sharing cakes, you're never going to have a whole cake, you know, but it's the, it's the minute when you put the expectation, this must happen. So like, for instance, say you were exploring the idea of one-to-one -one correspondence. Some pupils might naturally develop a sense of cardinality during activities designed to explore the stable order. But the minute you start saying you have to understand the cardinal value of what you're counting, it then becomes, I think you lose um, some of what's possible because, you know, you, you want to give people the opportunities to arrive at those at that understanding because they've seen so many examples of counting. They've had their errors corrected. And I think the example you give is the same. You know, the minute you start saying you have to do this, well, then you lose a lot of the, the great stuff that you do that, that happens through the freedom to design experiences or tasks that allow for that kind of reason to take place. You know, because Mike asks you, he does the thing where you're comparing fractions, but it's in the context of, okay, we've got some friends, we've, I, I beg some cakes or beg some cookies, and more friends come. How many cakes do I get? Fewer friends come. How many how many cakes does everyone get? You know that kind of thing. And, and so you've got this proportional reasoning, but there's not a, a written fraction in sight. You know. So I think yeah. I mean I I'm not one for groovy thinking, but I do think what you say is an example of um of where we can where it's to the detriment of the experience of the pupils when we add the formality too soon. Yeah, I think there's definitely an extent to which that by the time you are teaching them fractions, you want this to be a formal labeling system for something they've already got kind of an inherent grasp of because of the work they've done relating to division and multiplication, um, particularly using real objects, for example. So, I mean, the other thing I'd mentioned about the national curriculum is just in preparation for this podcast, I had a little look at um, the other year groups that I'm a little bit less familiar with or haven't taught for a while. Um, year three, that's a real doozy. <laughs> that's a real doozy. Like the fact that through that year group and presumably in a lot of schools, all at the same, like in a, in a chunk of time that will just be, we're learning about fractions and we're gonna do this for the next, you know, three or four weeks. There's fractions of amounts introduced for the first time, comparing fractions and adding and subtracting fractions. And that is, a hefty set of stuff to throw at children that's kind of got slightly different um, bits of understanding underpinning it. So yeah, that seems a bit 
that's a tough year group. I always thought year five had it tough, but I think year three, looking at it, have a pretty challenging job. Yeah. So let, let, let's put our least experienced teachers there. That'll do. <laughs> yeah. That's that's what, yeah, year three, yeah, furthest away from any kind of uh, summative assessment. That's where they can, ah, in inverted commas, do the least damage. <laughs> yeah, that's that tends to be what happens. Yeah, those, those inverted commas are doing a lot of work there. So what are the strengths and weaknesses of different pictorial representations of fractions? I've, I've drawn myself a little table in preparation for, for this question. So I'm sure I won't take everything you've got to say because you know this stuff more than I do. <laughs> but it, you never know. Um, so let's start with the bar model. I think the first thing about bar model is its versatility. The fact that children will be using it for all sorts of other bits and pieces if, if, if it's a representation that your school uses. And I think it's such a valuable one that it'd be a good idea that your school does. So versatile, children have seen it before. The fact that compared to other representations that we might talk about in a little while, that you can use the aspect of color quite clearly to represent amounts. Uh, the fact that you can find it on mathspot.com, you can find it on uh, Maths Learning Center, and, and that they're manipulable there really, really usefully. I think those are the key strengths of bar models. I'd say the weakness is that it can be hard to see what one is, if that makes sense. If you've got, say, several of them, um, you can see, okay, so that's a whole one and I'm breaking it into parts. But compared to, say, one we'll talk about in a minute, so the, the, a representation like a circle, it's hard to say, okay, if you take another chunk, another quarter, and you put it on to your whole one, it doesn't look like five quarters or one and a quarter. It now looks like one thing broken into fifths. So you have to be really deliberate with it when you're explaining to children what we're talking about in terms of one and whether that means you're using some kind of uh, grid reference grid reference that's the wrong word want some kind of grid on which you're saying look this space between here and here this is my this is the the, the size of my one thing usually from lessons i've done and seen you're talking about it as a chocolate bar or uh, something else you can break into pieces just a little aside there doing my tutoring the other day mentioned started using bar models for this mentioned it saying that oh yeah we can think of it let's let's imagine this is a chocolate bar and and the kid immediately jumped in with why is it always chocolate bars why is fractions <laughs> always chocolate bars oh and pizzas so yeah he's right it's always food for some unknown reason but yeah those are the strengths and weaknesses i think versatile kids will be used to it there are fantastic online representations that you can use the key weakness is it can be tricky to see exactly what is one compared to other representations yeah, I mean, I, I think they're structurally sound in terms of the structures of arithmetic. You know, they really respect the structures, I think, in, in terms of, you know, more so than other representations. The fact that they're rectangular is really helpful because probably easier to get an approximate proportion. You know, you never want to be precise and any time spent asking people to be precise in this respect is probably a waste of time because as long as it means what the pupil thinks it means. I think that's that's probably where I draw the line. Um, but you're right. 
you need a lot of prior understanding to get the most out of them. Because I always say they, they don't do the, the bar models don't do the maths for you. They just help you sort of, you know, take some of what's in your head and place it there for future reference. You know, was it the transient information effect? It's almost like an anecdote or not an anecdote, an antidote to that. You know, this information is not, is no longer a transient thought in my head. It's something that's here and I can manipulate it, I think, you know, but it, it, it has to be something you do from year three to year six to get good at. When you're dealing with things like finding, you know, half of a quarter or finding two thirds of a third, being able to draw in two different directions, that horizontal and vertical, in order to be able to show visually this idea of, you know, half of a third being, well, I've broken this into thirds using vertical lines now if i break it into a half with horizontal lines i can see that a half of this third i've broken it in effect into six pieces and that i'm i'm talking about one of them so that there's that particular value to having this rectangular representation i mean how you would try and make that work with say a circle i, I don't even want to begin to uh, to imagine that yeah probably also not a good idea with their uh, percentages because if you try to draw 100 parts, you know, I think you're losing some of the impact. Yeah, I think if you're going for like 73% of 364 and you're trying to draw that as a way of finding out what's going on, <laughs> then you could be there for a while. Having said that, we've all been there when we've seen a child answering a SATS paper and they've got a question like, you know, what's three quarters of 364? And you see them drawing 364 dots. And you're like, oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please just go on to the next question but um yeah that's that's perhaps for another yeah that's that's for another episode the the, the, the work the, the scariest things we've, we've ever seen when children are answering sats like answering sats papers is certainly an episode in itself that's an that's an elliot morgan episode that one is what about what about the number line what do you reckon strengths and weaknesses i like the immediate visibility of the the whole because you're labeling it, but also the immediate visibility of um, numbers uh, of say it, uh, improper fractions or um, mixed numbers, because you can immediately see, even when you're talking about a quarter, two quarters, three quarters, you can kind of look ahead to say, well, what's that there? Where's that going? Um, so I think that's something that I quite like. And then also the fact that it subtly sensitizes children to the idea that fractions are numbers and thus that we we can also be thinking about them in a negative sense as well which is not something that you immediately get from other kind of pictorial representations that you know are obviously cardinal rather than ordinal so yeah I'd, those are um, the things i like most about them i'd say the the challenge to it is the same challenge that we have with the number line generally which is that it is that bit more abstract it's an abstract understanding we're thinking about um, amount or quantity in terms of a distance from zero the continuous nature of it is uh, can be a bit of a challenge but um yeah i, th I think those are the the, the strengths and weaknesses There's probably one more weakness actually off, off the top of my head that comes to me we, when you're looking at say three quarters on a number line, you say, okay, so here's three, this, this position is three quarters. Usually you'll also have labeled on there 
whole one, two quarters, one quarter, etc. You start to see, in the same way as you do with the number line when you're counting, you start to see this um, embedded nature of other numbers. So you see three quarters as almost, if if you will, kind of containing two quarters and one quarter within it in the same way that we can think of four as containing kind of three and two and one it's kind of nested idea and it, there are obviously strengths and we strengths and weaknesses to that um but it can be a particularly challenging thing for children to wrap their head around particularly if they're not quite experienced with the number line itself yeah it's it's tough to do 50 minutes exclusively on the number line and find new stuff to say about it you know i really like that it allows pupils to explore a sense of number in in space you know and it and it it's a key driver in our mathematical understanding or certainly you know you cannot separate the internal number line from our proficiency with things like fractions we said that before i think the the big issue is user error and again, going back to before, we use it too early. We introduce it too early, you know. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be said. You know, everything you said there is, okay, that's what I want my pupils to understand when they leave primary school. You know, but it's just choosing the right time for that to be a thing. Now, we, we've mentioned circles a few times. Are there any positives for using circles with fractions? I think so. I think they it makes the idea of the whole um, really clear straight away. If you are if you've got piece like quarters say and you're piecing them together, it's very clear when you've got five quarters or six quarters that you have got a whole one and one quarter or two quarters depending on which one you're talking about there. So I think as, as an initial um, introduction to mixed numbers and improper fractions, I think they can be particularly um, useful the downside is that we often just end up talking about them as pizzas and cakes there's this tendency to see a circle and to go in that direction i think also they're particularly hard for children to draw if you say to them you know can you estimate what a third is on a rectangle you, you, they've got a you've got a pretty good chance that they're going to give you a pretty decent estimate whereas with a circle they might have a good understanding but they're just their spatial awareness in order to draw that can be significantly more challenging. So in terms of assessment, in terms of assessing children's understanding, it can sometimes uh, be a bit more difficult. Just something to note as well. We're talking about these particular representations. And I think what's worth adding on is the fact that we can often end up restricting ourselves to these when one of the most important things we can do is show children a wide variety. The amount of, I remember in my NQT year being surprised by, I think I saw some SATS papers and it was a few weeks before the SATS came around because I was a year six teacher and noticing and realizing the variety of representations of shapes and the importance of, of children seeing parts within different shapes in different orientations, say. So yeah, I, I, as much as we're talking about bar models and circles and then number line, then these are kind of like some of the most common representations. Making sure children see a wide variety seems to be a pretty important thing to do. What about, so what, any, anything that I've missed in terms of strengths and weaknesses of circles? I mean, in my notes, I've just written, pah, P-A-H, <laughs> pah. 
<laughs> circles and you know disdain emoji and <laughs> but I, but I do agree with them you know particularly when you have one whole circle and then for instance a quarter of a circle that's 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 very very clear I mean the one thing that we haven't discussed are two color counters because I think they're very literal in what they represent and I think they work particularly well within frames like a five frame or a ten frame because then you've got that sense of the whole you know which pupils will have been exploring since they were four or five years old and so hopefully by the time you see that when you're nine ten you already have this established okay I'm dealing with something you know there may there are parts that may not be here and these parts are distinguished from each other by their color then putting those pieces together is actually um you know rather simple and you know we started with talking ratio I don't think there's anything better for articulating ratio and then modeling ratio to pupils than two color counters in a in a frame because that way you can then look at what is this actually representing what's going on here and then I think from there you get a really solid understanding yeah just the thing I'd add to that is the um the value of then using them kind of out outside of the frame because presumably and depending on how you use them if you're looking at inside a 10 frame you're I mean if well I guess this is a question I'm throwing over to you so if say you were exploring a ratio like two to one would you use a a frame for that would because presumably a three frame or would you happily kind of embed it within a 10 frame i presume not because of the just the the extra confusion of that no yeah you're right and um, i mean if i were to use it i would choose carefully the numbers involved in the ratio and um, but it's mostly the addition subtraction of fractions that's supported, you know, because if you've got two tenths plus three tenths, you've got two red, three blue, and there are 10 parts all together, but some of them don't exist, that's where you're getting the, the frame benefit, you know. So, you know, because you're not just going to stick with the ratio of two to one, you might have two to one to four by the time you're in secondary school, and you know, and then you are restricted by the frame. So we're thinking about negatives. You know that frame can be restrictive in terms of number choice um, or question choice. You know, so I think you're right. It's it's mostly for the manipulation of fractions, but I do think in certain circumstances you can utilize it. But the, the counters themselves, as a representation of ratio, are are pretty powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the having those and then like ideally having a little set spare of like. Because you, if say you've got your double, your two colored counters and they're red and yellow, you've got a little pot somewhere of blue ones for when you want to look at ratio that involves kind of three numbers um, is a useful thing to do. But yeah, I'm a huge, huge um, advocate of two, uh, two color counters when you're talking about fraction and ratio. They're just, they're just well, they're just like, they're just useful for everything, really. There's so many aspects of mathematics that you just want to have a great big bucket of them in every classroom. Yeah, when, when people ask me, oh, we want to get better at using manipulatives, I'll say, well, just spend a year getting to know your two color counters. And then the, the quality of experience will be immeasurably enriched. 
you know, it's maybe three, four years down the line, you start thinking about how can we get really good at using Cuisinaire? Because that, that takes a long time, you know, and, and and these things shouldn't be rushed, you know, and there's so much you can get from two-color counters that I, I think you could spend quite a sizable amount of time just getting really good at using them. Yeah, I know we've been here with this, but I appreciate that Cuisinaire is like the purist's choice and, <laughs> and that they're incredibly like versatile. I, I kind of think that to some extent uh, in certain areas, that versatility kind of works against them. Um, in, with other manipulatives, there's a certain, like, I know what I'm doing with them. I, I, I know very specifically the purposes and with Cuisinaire, because they can do so much. I guess you could say the same thing about two color counters, but two color counters and 10 frames, you get a really good sense of what you can do with those. Whereas Cuisinaire can sometimes yeah, no, th this is just me saying I haven't taught much with Cuisinaire, really. Wish I had. <laughs> I think the most important thing, though, as you say, is that if you took all of the examples that we'd, we've discussed and used them, give people's opportunities to experience them, that's, that's the main thing. You know, that's where, that's where kids build up this sort of developed schema of what proportional reasoning is, what, what ratio is, you know, so... You, know, you can't go wrong as long as you're going past okay you know because the fraction wall is very common but that should never be the only thing you, you experience as always this won't be the last time we come back to this particular concept it's been fascinating talking to you christopher so all i said to do is say thank you very much for joining me always a pleasure and now it, we're in the middle of a pretty busy time. So if I saw you in the Rhineland last week, it was great to see you. Thank you very much for coming to my session. If you're driving to MathsConf this morning, um, I'll make sure this is out a little bit early so you can, you can get there, you can listen early, and um, I'll see you in a bit. But mostly to everyone at home, to everyone who sponsors us on Kofi, who, who follows us in the Discord, thanks for listening. Nope. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>